Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is the Ocean Protect podcast. Talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect. Committed to change. Dr. Michelle Blewett, welcome to the Ocean Protect podcast. Thank you for having me once more. First up, what are you a doctor of? I just uh, always get, you know, like imposter syndrome when we talk to doctors. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, it's another doctor. What are you a doctor of? Underwater acoustics and the acoustic behavior of free range bottlenose dolphins. Wow. Yes. Wow. And Collected here in Macquarie University in Sydney many years ago. So. Yeah, looked at the acoustic behaviour of two populations of bottlenose dolphins and underwater noise and the impact of underwater noise on marine mammals mainly. Mm. Wow. Is that from ships, from mainly what? I did controlled experiments with boats uh, looking at them and it's very difficult when you're trying to get wild animals to be in the right spot at the right time doing the right thing. So I looked at boats mainly and then I did sound signatures of different types of boats as well. So it's amazing and underwater jet boat will sound very different to a jet ski and very different to a diesel boat and everything like that. So then I did a big literature review on the impact of like uh, helicopter noise, seismic surveys. I went on and uh, after my PhD and did a postdoc on beaked whales, the impact of Navy sonar on beaked whales particularly. you come a long way yeah. <laughs> because that was where we are now. Like so yes. X number of years later, um, yes, we we're back X. at Bondi Beach we are. having a chat. And I believe some congratulations are in order. OzMaps, the wonderful organisation that you've founded, celebrates their five-year anniversary today. Today, Woo-hoo! yes, that's correct. That is impressive. It is impressive. We officially launched in July 2018, but I started the role, yes, five years ago today and with funding for really only two years initially. So the fact that we're 100% grant funded uh, to take it five years is, and with a very minimal staff, I'm the only full-time staff. So yes, it's taken over my world. That is amazing. (laughs) It's organisations like OzMap, that's really, it's just a a one-man band and the work you guys do, which is obviously why we're here to talk uh, Mm. on the the podcast. But before we get to OzMap, you were at the uh, Ocean Lovers Festival with us. Yes. Um, We sat down with um, a wide variety of people. What were your your take-homes? I thought it was great. I mean, we didn't have a lot of people there, but I thought the people that we had there were amazing. To be, it was almost like the superstars of, mm. of this field, me included. But, <laughs> <laughs> oh, <God>. <laughs> but you know, to be in the same room with these people. Mm. And I like the fact that so many of these things you go to and they're just talks mm. by different people. You have very little time to actually network and talk to people. And so I think having the panel session was really great to be able to 
get those questions answered that mm. people want answered. Mm. Yeah, so was it, was, yeah, it wasn't a typical conference where you go and, and people talk at you and then you have five minutes of questions. I yeah. think there were there were three keynotes. The keynotes were roughly 10 minutes long mm. and then you had an hour 20 of pretty much dialogue between yeah. panellists mm. and the audience. It was like you were networking mm. inside the actual mm. Mm event so no no it was a fantastic event you enjoyed it brad oh yeah look totally and i agree with both of you like the the key risk of that an event like that is just a talk fest a lot of talk (laughs) (laughs) patting each other on the back saying oh i'm a good fella you're a good fella we're all good fellas but we really do want to drive change and one of the best things that happened from that event yesterday is just that collaborative mentality that was Mm. um you know fostered Uh, even in the lead up to the organization of the event when various virtual meetings which michelle uh, participated in there's already collaboration happening before the Mm. event even happened, uh, which was fantastic. I've said this a few times, but so many people are trying to address plastic pollution, working on the same problem, but in parallel to each Mm -hmm. other. Some of them have a lot of money and some of them are running on the smell of an oily rag, doing a hell of a a incredible amount of work, but just with very limited funding. Don't want to put you on the spot, but obviously, you know, OSMAP do an incredible amount of work with citizen science and, and advocating for better practice, et cetera, with very, very limited funding. Very limited funding. What yeah. is that like? What is that like? So you've been doing this for five years. You said you have two years worth of funding. How do you keep the lights on? At times with difficulty mm. and at times you become very disheartened, not only about the issues and the problems that we're trying to face and deal with, but just trying to find enough money to keep people because keep people employed. Our team is very small. That's what keeps me awake, you know, and often CEOs and directors think about what are the three things that keep you awake at night? And that keeps me awake often. And that's difficult because obviously if we had more people, we had more resources, we could do even more. You know, and I mean, that's the frustrating part when there's other organisations that have, you know, a copious amounts of funding and government agencies that want our data mm. and use our data and then we don't get any acknowledgement or recognition for it. That's frustrating mm. and heartbreaking, really. Funding side of things is very difficult. Yeah. What keeps you going? Passion, drive. You know, like there's a problem there and we found, you know, like just, I mean, as you've heard, my background's not microplastic. My focus changed when I finished my PhD and my postdoc because I then became a mum and I didn't want to be the cutthroat researcher anymore. I love the science and I love the research. And so this combined everything is my love of research, the love of education and science communication and talking to people about the issues and coming up with the solutions, but then also the engagement of people. You know, we work with people as, you know, as young as tiny tots and, you know, seeing as my daughter's been growing, grown up on it, right through, you know, our average age in Adelaide of my volunteers is 70, you know, and they love nothing wow. more. But they, of course, are often coping with um, grief, eco-grief, because, you know, we find these areas that have huge quantities close to a million pieces in one square metre, let alone if you extrapolate that out for a, for a shoreline. So hold on, a million pieces in one square metre. Whereabouts are we talking? In an area in Adelaide. Um, a million. In, mm-hmm, in a wetland, a constructed wetland. Mm-hmm. So you could argue that it's doing its job? That's right. But that's the, the thought processes of some of the government agencies that I'm working with yeah. is that that's what they say. They're constructed wetlands. They're doing their job, but it's still it. a habitat. Yeah, it's still yeah. an ecosystem. Yeah, yeah, There's yeah, yeah. a tremendous amount of native species and of migratory birds and that are using this habitat. Uh, and yet with you, I wasn't saying that. I just was saying that for yeah. the sake of it. Because it it, you, people do, uh, will we'll argue that. They'll go, well, that, look, that, and they, they are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
you know, but that shouldn't be the case. That shouldn't be the argument to leave that stuff there and not no. find a, a solution. And, you know, that's what we're doing is working towards longer-term solutions and that's how the program has, has evolved in the last few years. And you talk about that longer-term solution, but obviously you've been operating for five years now with and, and obviously continuously collecting data in that a five-year period. What are the key trends that you're seeing mm. with that very, very large data set. Yeah, we have. We've got, I believe, the largest data set on microplastics in Australia, if not the world. But, you know, it's collected by citizen scientists. And I, I point that out because it's so important as a scientist to be able to have that reach. And you can't do it as a single scientist or a very small team. You know, that's why we rely on, and the, you know, everybody that, many people that you have on your program, we're all citizen scientists. And so to have that reach, there's obviously a hell of a lot of gaps that need filling, definitely. So what we find generally, though, like in a lot of Different to cleanups, I suppose, is that many of the beaches that we go to, ocean-facing beaches, have relatively low loads of microplastic. The loads increase tremendously when you throw in stormwater, though, and this is, you know, where you guys are specialists in this. But so estuaries, lakes. Coves. Coves, wetlands, mm, yeah. where that stormwater flows into those areas. There's no anywhere to go. Yeah, and that's where the loads accumulate uh, over time. And our program, I point out, is not about accumulation loads. So we're not interested, we are interested, but we don't quantify the microplastics that are accumulated over time. Mm. We look at what's been brought in the last significant high tide. So we want to see what's coming in rather than what's being accumulated over a long period of time. Well, I think it's because, you know, you might have an area that does have a high load, but you're never going to know how much is accumulated, you know. So we can go- need a baseline. We need a baseline of all these areas. Like the wetlands that I worked in, initially we were getting huge loads, but then I would clear um, and have a sort of semi-permanent quadrat. We work in a 50 by 50 centimetre quadrat. And then I can see what's coming in in that period, in a month period. And so I can look at those trends over time as well. Can we just define some terms as well? Let's define what microplastic is. Yeah. Yeah. So microplastic is anything less than five mils in size, and it can go right down to we're breathing it in. It's about the half the size of your little pinky nail. So things that are left in the environment, there's two types. There's primary microplastic and secondary microplastic. So primary microplastic is, I've got some inside actually, um, is the- Great, just carry around some noodles. I do. (laughs) (laughs) I literally do. It's crazy. It's actually probably some in my pockets. Um, But uh, so the primary microplastics, when plastic is made in its base form, it gets made into the pellets into the nurdles, used to be called mermaid tears, sadly enough. Mm. And then there's the, the plastics that are made for like microbeads and in putting into products. So uh, when we're, you know, washing our face or cleaning our teeth with anything that has granules in it, that's made of plastic, unless it, you know, some now is more so using salt and coffee beans and things like that as in products. And then there's secondary microplastics that are made from the breakup, not the breakdown, but the breakup of larger items left in the environment. What do you and say? Not break down because well, they don't break, break down. down. Yeah, yeah. No, so they never break. Yeah, yeah. So they never break yeah. down cool. far enough that they never ever go away. Yeah. So every every piece of plastic that's ever been created in this universe is still here in one form or another, and so that new statistic of 170 trillion pieces is absolute. I mean, not absolute. It's an estimate, of course, but you know, you think because all of those big pieces that are out there, they become so brittle through the UV, through the wave action, and they break up into smaller and smaller pieces. That number uh, just to. Uh, for people that aren't familiar with that paper, it was a, a paper published, I think, just seven, eight days ago mm. in the Public Library of Science, peer-reviewed, et cetera, and you know, a bunch of 
very noteworthy authors, which basically said, yeah, they're, they're estimating that there's 170 trillion, with a T, 170 trillion microplastics in our ocean. And they describe that as a plastic smog within our oceans, mm-hmm. which is smog, smog doesn't occur and smog. Occur. Yeah, with the sm- a smog within as an underwater. Okay, that's a clickbait. Yeah. But look, yeah, what, yeah. I'll tell you what, just on that, I can't fathom these numbers anymore. Mm, I don't even know crazy. what 171 trillion looks like. No. no. You know, no, no one does. I mean, the numbers are just going to keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Mm. They are. They, and they don't shock people anymore. No. That I- doesn't shock me. No, and we used to say, I have a great analogy in my little girl, she always says there's more microplastics in the ocean than there are stars in our galaxy. Mm-hmm. And that was at the five trillion mark. Wow. So you can only imagine now, like you yeah. look up on a beautiful starry night and wow. uh, and it's crazy, you know, if you're out sailing and mm-hmm. you're just out in the blue water, you, you have no no lights from anywhere. You think of those stars out there and there's more microplastics in our oceans. And, and a lot of people have historically thought that it just all sinks to the, the bottom of the deep blue sea, like, you know, hundreds of meters kilometers below the ocean sur- ocean surface but there, again there's more research showing number one that a very large proportion of that uh, plastic load is actually coming to our shoreline i think mm. denise was saying somewhere between 90 to 92 percent which is scary but also uh, there's a, other studies showing that the oceans are actually one of a better word burping microplastics yeah. into the atmosphere yeah. And then obviously from there, traveling thousands of kilometers to wherever they might deposit, mm. whether it's on the top of the Pyrenees or within our lungs mm. in Bondi. Yeah, well, you think Crazy. about the big cyclone that's just passed, passed across Australia and ended up in Africa. You know, a cyclone's going to pick up mm. stuff that's on the surface and, you know, throw break it around it everywhere, break it up even mm-hmm. more. It's a bit of soup. So, you know, going back to the work at OzMap, tell the listeners about what you do on a typical day. Yeah, so, I mean, OzMap uh, itself is we train local citizens in our program. It's a scientific methodology. So we run training days and uh, officially accredit them into, into our program. And that's where our reach could be definitely bigger because if we wanted it to be, but we'd lose that scientific reach rigor. And there's different levels of citizen science. You can, you know, as a council, you might ask people to count the number of birds that come in your backyard. That's a level of citizen science right through to following a a program like ours. It's a very strict scientific program. So we want to know who's out there collecting and how they're doing it so that we know that the data we get back and we put on our hotspot map and our national database that the data is collected the same way so people can compare. And so it's really great tool for our programs directly matched to the Australian curriculum for science and geography as well. So teachers can use our program uh, with their kids and look at their local beach and adopt their local beach and then compare that data from across the country to look at other areas because it's all collected the same way. Places like Manly Cove, it's our longest running data set that we've been collecting there since July 2018, fairly much monthly since then. And they're really important with long-term data sets and to look at temporal patterns, to look at how that changes over time. So we look at the loads that land on that beach and there's a lot there that watch it change. For people that don't know Manly Beach, Manly Cove is a place that grass strip is called The Office. There's just hundreds of tourists down there. At any day, depending on the current, depending on you know how much rain we've had, it's a huge amount of load comes into that cove. Mm-hmm. What type of trends have you seen over the last five years? Are we getting a reduction in Manly Cove? No, not no. really. Up and down. The loads on Manly Cove, for example, some is definitely coming out of the stormwater network, but a lot is coming across the harbour. Yeah, yeah. And because it's sort of a southeasterly facing beach, when we have our prevailing winds here in Sydney, yeah. it lands on that corner. And yeah. so that's where a lot of that comes in. It's raked. 
Um, and sometimes raking a beach gets rid of the big stuff, but it causes what's in the sand to break up into smaller pieces from literally from the tractor. And so it's not always the answer. You know, it's finding out where these hotspots are and ultimately figuring out then how do we stop it? Where's it coming from and how do we stop it? You mentioned these hotspots. So where are they generally speaking? Hotspots are generally found yeah, in the estuaries, in um, lakes, around some lakes, uh, seawater lakes, because it's it's where that stormwater flows onto there. The big thing is about with stormwater, and as you guys know, the GPTs that put in the gross pollutant traps, they only capture the big stuff. Mm-hmm. They don't capture the small stuff. And I think the frustrating thing is that microplastic is still not considered a pollutant. Is plastic though? Plastic is, yes, but not microplastic. Why isn't microplastic considered a pollutant? In stormwater, plastic is not identified. We, yeah. So we look gross pollutants, yeah. and that's how we yeah. identify plastic. Yeah. But it's not like a contaminant of no, concern. poorly defined. Poorly defined. Yeah, but, so, uh, but why isn't microplastics a pollutant? When you classify something as a pollutant, what does that designation mean? I'm like plastic, bigger plastic is called a, a pollutant. Mm. I mean, um, oil left in from boats is a pollutant. So you can be fined for the release of yeah, that pollutant. Yeah. Is that the, yeah. yeah. And so that's the difficult thing is that every state you go to as well, the legislation is different and the enforcement of things are different and the compliance is different. You know, we have areas that there's significant loss of microplastic. It's not enforced. It's known but it's not enforced. And so when does it have to become a problem for it to be enforced? Oh, so I could go down to wherever and tip a, another, another trillion microplastics into Bondi Beach and no one's going to find me. Well, well someone they, probably would. Yeah, someone probably would. But, yeah, there's that fine line. That It's that fine line. It's a grey area at least. It's yeah. a very grey area because once it leaves a facility, if it's a loss within a facility, then it's not considered a problem. So you might be at a plastics factory and you can walk in there and there's billions of pieces of microplastic mm. all over the ground. Mm. You can clearly see that they hose things down, sweep things down, blow things down. The drains, some facilities have to have nets on those drains depending on the compliance and the location that you're in, but then some don't. And that goes straight down into the stormwater network and straight out into our... And what about for transportation? I mean, you've seen trucks when they're going down the highway and you know, the wind's just blowing. Yeah. And, polystyrene. Know, polystyrene off. Yep. That's deemed to be okay because it's yeah. small bits. Well, I find that oh, staggering. Wow. Yeah, look, we have water quality objectives for a whole bunch of parameters that are beyond the naked eye. Like I'm talking about dissolved nutrients, dissolved oxygen even. Like, you know, that they are water quality indicators, but to not have a, a designation as a as microplastics as a pollutant. So subsequently don't have targets, water quality targets for water quality objectives for these contaminants. Mm. That's bizarre. And it's not considered a littered item either, you know, even <sighs> though it's... Bullshit. I know. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Wow. Mm. So if your pen falls out of your bag and a car rolls over it, it's not considered a littered item, even though we know from our program that this microplastic occurs at the street level. And so it's not even being considered as a littered item in a lot of these wow. regulations. And getting back to this hotspot issue, is there a trend though? Are some hotspots hotter than others? Definitely. Or, like, so what makes a... What's uh, the hottest what, hotspot? <laughs> yeah. Well, going back first, what do we define as a hotspot? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we have a grading system. Right. So very low is zero to 10 pieces per square metre. So we calculate an average. We do at least three quadrats. So What's with, a quadrat? With terminology, yes. Yeah. So mm-hmm. we have a transect line, which is basically a tape measure of 50 metres. 
this is the general methodology, although I don't want people to go out there and do this on your own, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, and we make it into a belt transfer. You can so we, once you've been accredited. Yes, once yeah. you've been accredited, but you have to get in t- touch with us. And that's along the last significant high tide line. And then we randomly choose where we're going to place our quadrat. There's quadrants and there's quadrats. Ours is a quadrat and it's basically 50 centimetre square that is placed on a randomly chosen number mm-hmm. so that we're not biasing mm-hmm. our sample yeah, yeah, yeah. along this transect line. Okay, and then we sieve, we collect the top two centimetres of sand and we sieve it between a one and five mil size sieve. So we're capturing only the one to five millimetre mm-hmm. size class. Which is a macro then? Well, what's the macro, macro is a greater than five. five. Okay. okay. So below one is, yeah. below one millimetres is nano? That, that no, looks- below one mi- is still micro and then it becomes nano and then pico in right. terms of when we're breathing it in right. as well. So, um, (laughs) and then, you know, so Scott's done study, Dr. Scott Wilson, my research director, he's done studies in households by just putting Petri dishes out around your household. And uh, it's considered around 14,000 fibers just in our household that we're breathing in each year, you know, just from the general dust and microfibers and microplastics and nanoplastics in our homes. That's without even throwing in a, a rug that gets vacuumed or carpet, synthetic carpet, the clothes that we wear, et cetera. So wow. the sources are tremendous. But oh. so getting back to this, so what's mm. so what's the hotspot? Yeah. So yeah, so we have a, a rating less than ten pieces per square meter is very low, right up to greater than ten thousand pieces is considered an extreme area. Anything greater than two hundred and fifty pieces per square meter is what we consider a hotspot. So anything just less than that, we would call it a watch and act area. So for instance, Rose Bay here in Sydney. It's an area that we've worked quite regularly in the last sort of 12 to 18 months, and we know that that's a hotspot. And so the idea is is that we've created now this micro-litter reduction framework, a strategy, a framework that councils, particularly in local governments, can use that can then use this step-by-step process to figure out where they might have microplastic hotspots in their, in their local council region. And so that's where we sort of designed the program around that. So around Sydney, for example, like I said, Manly, Cove, and it can go in and out of that hot spot zone, but overall it's considered a hot spot. Rose Bay is another one. Athol Beach in front of the zoo is a huge one. Again, those sources there is stuff coming across the harbour that's being washed in and being, you know, left there over time and breaking up into smaller pieces. All over the country, we've got lots of hotspots. They generally are associated with increased urbanisation, of course. So we've got them in Adelaide, we've got them in Sydney, we've got them in Perth. But again, there's probably so many more but our reach is only just as far as we can get sure, uh, yeah. with the, the limited resources that we have. Say you define it as a hotspot, what are your visual observations of the catchment area? Like is it low socioeconomic area? Is it a high traffic area, high people? When you come up out of your sieve, go, this is a hotspot, what, what are you typically seeing? Or do you see any trends in what you're seeing? Not in terms of that necessarily. You think of Rose Bay, that's not a low no. socioeconomic area. No. That's coming down the stormwater network for sure, as well as coming in across the harbour. Yeah, because that's coming That's coming a north, north facing, yeah, yeah, but yeah. you still get a lot of traffic in that area yeah. as well. But it's again, most of it is associated with stormwater. Okay. You know, we've got, I've got an area in Adelaide in West Lakes, yeah. um, which is a constructed wet lake system. Yeah. It's ocean water, it's seawater, surrounded by houses, um, beautiful houses with pontoons and quite small shorelines. People fish there, kayak there, you name it. Like it's a swim. very swim. Yeah. yeah. I wouldn't ever. I would never eat anything out of there. Uh, and it's a 
huge hotspot. It's one of our hottest spots we've got across the country. Wow. On average, in some of those, like we, we sample regularly about six sites around there, on average 35,000 pieces per square metre. Wow. And, um, and, that, and it has to be said, it's first top two centimetres. Top two centimetres. And this is with three quadrats that our averages are 35,000. And so if you extrapolate that out to a 100-metre beach, you know, you're looking at multiple millions in this one area. And the way that is being looked at or dealt with is by putting more sand down. Oh, my goodness. You've got to be kidding me. Out of mind. Yeah. How do you count 35,000 pieces? <laughs> Good question. That's where my eco-grief comes in with my volunteers. <laughs> because we have been these, they, I call them the hills ladies because they live up in Adelaide Hills, but they regularly go down there and sample for me. And they were doing it very regularly for at least two years. But we, they would come up with these results, and I'll tell you about how that happens in a minute. But after a while, they just go, look, I'm not going to do it anymore, Michelle, because no one's doing anything about it. Not for lack of trying, but no one is dealing with the issues. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. And so the way we do that is literally we use our one to five mil and they literally pick out every single piece of microplastic. Now we look at type, we look at color, we look at shape, we look at size. And so they literally, in the beginning, recording every single piece that we're finding. Now in some of those larger loads, we might, we subsample as well. So you can weigh it up and take a portion and sample it that way if it's well mixed. And at the end of the day, if it's 10,000 or 11,000, it's still a huge yeah, amount huge of microplastic. Numbers, of so, and, and that's an area that is used for fishing. It is used for recreational activities. It's not a constructed wetland, but it's a recreational area surrounded by houses, surrounded by kids playing. So you can imagine the potential for traffic transfer. So this look at this particular site. I'm really interested about it. What, what are your observations? What is breaking up that quickly or what is the cause of all that microplastic in that area? Have you, you obviously got that in your head? To some degree. And this is where our framework would kick in. Okay, okay. We've identified it as a hotspot through engagement with local residents and lo- local community. The next step is to doing the source, source tracking. Yeah. So where is it coming from? And we've done that successfully in a couple of places and I'll tell you about that in just a moment. And then we will then go back to the sources and put in street level drain baskets, such as your baskets, to be able to then quantify it at the source. And then it, you have to do the education around it because often it's not even known that this is happening. But in the case of West Lakes, probably 90% of what we're finding there is foam. Okay. And it's wow. old foam. So the houses that surround 
West Lakes uh, oh. have pontoons in front of them. Yeah. And I'm sure if we did some sampling off Brisbane River when the floods, yep. then there were so many pontoons washed away. And so soon as polystyrene gets wet, it expands and it breaks up into smaller pieces. So so that's hard to do, attribute one cause because yep. there's a shopping centre up the road, mm. there's all these pontoons, but we also have an awful lot of nurdles, the pellets as well, and they come from a source. Yeah, you can track that We back. can track. You I just mean, Google plastics factory within a exactly. 5K and, radius. And that's or, all we end up wow. doing half the time is doing exactly that. And so you can track that back. And in the wetlands where we have over there as well, we did find a tremendous amount. That's the area that I had 740,000 pieces per square metre. We were able to track back using that methodology to be able to find the source of it. And now we're working with that industry to be able to try and stop it before it even goes out there anymore. You can see how there's 171 trillion trillion on the um, ocean if there's what, 700,000 in a square metre. Crazy. It is crazy. In one wetland in good old Adelaide and that's it. Yeah, Adelaide, not Jakarta, no, not Manila, that's right. mm. Adelaide, mm. and, then, and then, then the local council was let's put some more sand on it. Well, different area, but okay. same mentality. Same that mentality. council, though, Port Adelaide and Full Council, have been amazing, okay, and they've cool. supported us a lot, and they're continuing to support us with that finding that source, and um, so they've been absolutely amazing. And like you mentioned, the foam and how it washes after the floods uh, in Brisbane. Uh, like our, our previous guest, uh, Graham Lloyd from Sea Shepherd Australia, organised a cleanup of Morton Island off Brisbane mm-hmm. after the floods. And I was on that uh, crew with about, I don't know, 30 or 40 other Sea Shepherd Australia volunteers. And, yeah, styrofoam everywhere on that mm. beach. It's a remote beach, you know, 50 or whatever K off the coast of Brisbane. And I was just completely littered with mm. the little bits of styrofoam mm. everywhere. And, and it's so hard because it blows yeah, and moves course. so easily. Yeah, and so it's very difficult. Look, we've been in this game long enough, but this is what really pisses me off is that, Ninety-nine percent of us sit here when it rains, washes our city clean. We go out and go down to get something to eat or whatever after a nice rain. Everything looks clean, but the effect that that, that is then causing mm. to these remote areas mm. that you don't even think about, mm, mm, mm. this high devastation. But mm. we just go about our day and think, oh well, right, yeah. But in terms of the type of plastics as well, like the IUCN report identified that the number one source of primary microplastics was. Vehicle tyre wear and tear. Mm-hmm. Are you seeing that in your sample sets absolutely, as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, so vehicle tyre, that is my, finer than the one mil oh, more it often is than not. Okay, right. And so in terms of tyre dust, mm. we don't look for specifically. Right. However, if you go up one more level, the tyres are being repurposed into playing fields with synthetic grass and softball playgrounds. And so we've recently done a study on that with Tangaroa Blue Foundation as part of the Reef Clean Project up off Queensland. And we've now just finishing analysing 17 samples from playgrounds up in that area and have found that we collect it from zero, two and four metres away from a playground, that there's up to 1.2 million pieces of this rubber crumb that's being released within four metres of these playgrounds. And these are in sensitive areas right on the Great Barrier Reef and that our kids are playing with them. And there's also the environmental and human impact of crumb of rubber that is made of synthetic tyre, a synthetic rubber that is made from tyres that are being repurposed. So let's just get this straight. The big companies, tyre manufacturers, Bridgestone, um, Goodyear, Goodyear, Michelin, that, Michelin, they're producing tyres 
that go on all, all of our cars and for roughly equates to about 30% of microplastics that, that's been identified mm. across different studies going oceans, yeah. and, and going into our oceans. Then what we're doing with those tyres is repurposing them, making sports ground to then leach out more exactly. and more. That has to stop. That's dumb cycling. That, that it is, is stupid. Dumb cycling, yeah. And also greenwashing as well. Like it sounds it, good. Oh yeah, I'm recycling and I'm, I'm repurposing, repurposing this mm-hmm. otherwise, you know, waste product. Yeah. But basically reintroducing it back into the environment. Very much so. But not only that, not only there's this high source of microplastic from this stuff, mm. it's the it? it's the leachate that's yeah. in it. The the chemicals in there. Yeah, yeah, because there's, there's a million. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's over three hundred chemicals within these rubber yeah, tires. Yeah. And I think at close to two hundred of those are potential carcinogens. And our kids are literally Play running around. around and yeah, and not only that too, the inhalation of this dust, the inhalation is what's become really a big deal mm. from this, which can cause, you know, chronic infections. And our kids are playing on it mm. and they're playing on it with their hands and their knees and they're running into it and, and ingesting it. And, and that's that, what's the issue. And we shouldn't throw away, like you mentioned these chemicals and the fact that they're carcinogenic. And we've got a lot of studies to show that they kill uh, our fish en masse. Like you remember yes. one of our previous podcast guests, mm-hmm. Dr. Ed Kay from yep. the University of Washington. The salmon. Yeah, yeah the co-host the salmon, salmon in the mm-hmm. Puget Sound. Uh, they basically basically dropped dead on mass every yeah, time it rains and exactly. he, his team identified that there was a chemical in car tires 6PBT, yeah. which breaks down into 6PBT quinone, which is highly toxic to even meet along coho salmon. Yeah, yeah. And you've got to wonder what that does when it gets into your lungs of our children. Mm-hmm. It's scary to think yeah, about. Yeah. So I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, am I missing something? How is it allowed to happen? Because it wasn't aware. Okay. There was no studies being done. And there's studies, we're still, re, you know, we're very backwards in terms of what's going on here in Australia as well. And these fields are still being put in. The studies out of UQ too now that are showing exactly very similar results to the to the Canadian work that's being done as well. And Dr. Scott, he's done some studies on leachate, the leachate from this rubber crumb, and that it's completely, it's a huge quantities of zinc in this stuff. And zinc with normal in animals and is a natural element, we all need a little bit of zinc. But in these huge quantities that it's coming out of this leachate, it's toxic and, and fatal to all aquatic animals that he was testing, right down to a dilution of 1%. And our kids are playing on it. Jeremy's like, I, I, can't, I don't understand. I, I don't understand it either. Like, how do we just roll out an initiative like this? Have our kids and literally run, and, and no one's doing a check. Yeah. Mm. Like, surely there must be some sort of You'd think, you'd hope that there'd be some sort of QA, QC procedure to say, hey, before we go putting it in our kids' playgrounds and sporting fields, let's just make sure it's it's Not safe. Not dangerous, hey, yeah. So, just so we know, so are we talking about the synthetic grass or that red pasty stuff? The crumb. So the softball playground oh, yeah, can yeah. be, so, yeah, can so be down red, in Manly, it can be black. Yeah, yeah. Well, for instance, <laughs> I was in Manly last week when I was meeting up with you yeah, for yeah, coffee. Yeah, 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 yep. And there's a playground right on the shoreline there. Just opposite from just up, yeah, yeah, yep, where we were sitting. Yep. There was a council officer out there with a vacuum cleaner, literally a vacuum cleaner with a very long cord. And I went in, I was like, are you seriously doing what I'm thinking you're doing? And I went in and I said, can I ask what you're doing? He said, I'm vacuuming up the green balls, which was the rubber crumb from this playground. And he's direct. And I tried to start to tell him what the impacts of those green balls are. And he said, excuse me, lady, I'm just having a directive here. I need to just clean up and vacuum the green balls. That's his job, mate. That's his job. Do do it every day. Vacuuming. Going out there with a hand vacuum to vacuum up because we, you know, there is playing fields up in the Northern Beaches Council area. and They know it's happening. And then, you know what, they're paying someone to go out and hide it, hide the mess. Or on the flip side, clean it up before it goes into the waterways as well. 
But the fact is, is that they're still there. Now, people often ask us, okay, well, if you haven't got softball playgrounds, what do you put down for kids? Fucking grass. Back to the- Sorry. (laughs) Really? Let's go back to the basics. Go back to sand. Yeah. Sand, bark. Bark, Like we grew up with. Yeah, Yeah, you get a few splinters. Well, that's the whole expression. You got a bit of bark off you. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And it's a difficult thing, you know. I mean, there are other products that are starting to come out that are better- than the rubber crumb, but they're still made of plastic. And over time, they're still going to degrade no matter what you do. But the good news is that because of this science that you're heavily involved in, changes are happening. Is that correct? Yeah, in some locations, certainly. There's a couple of uh, council areas in Queensland and one here in in Sydney that are actually removing those softball playgrounds, but not necessarily the synthetic uh, playing fields because right. obviously there's the benefits of mm. I don't see any benefits personally playing on plastic I can't mm. think of it obviously with low, low rain and but you know the studies are out now that it, it's no better at all in terms of maintenance uh, than just going back to good old grass wow we're working with one council area that has recognized that it is a particular issue and they have drain traps around the playing fields to be able to capture this stuff and and they're quantifying that as well Good year, Michelin. Yeah, I was about to uh, say. Have all this money in the world. They're making a, a gazillion dollars making tyres that, you know, that come to an end of life and, and not having really any costs associated with its disposal and they're repurposing it to dodgy, let's face it, dodgy and potentially damaging products. Little old Michelle Blewett, with her very limited funding, is going out and doing this research with no support from these groups, finding these this issue. Are they at all? Yeah, have you support? run good year? <laughs> no, I haven't run good year. Well, they wouldn't take your call. <laughs> Probably is there, not. Do you think there's an appetite that, that they'd actually like to work with you to help improve their legacy do on this Do they want to know just how bad well, it is? Well, no, no, you, you're bang on. It's like in previous sessions that we've had, people don't want to know the bad story. They don't. Do they know what's going on? Yeah, but they don't want to publicise. Mm. My question is this. Who's profiteering over the, the repurpose of the tyres? Good year, sell it. The tyres come off. I presume they come off at a service station, then the, that service station then sells those tyres to who? Where does the money go? Because I don't, I don't think know, they're selling them. They, you know, they give it away as I a waste they, product? They give the, yeah, okay. count, I suppose the council's but, but take they're, they're obviously reducing their expenditure because they don't have to pay for the ultimate end of life. That's disposal right. cost of this. So yeah. in many ways, yeah, like whether they give it away or sell it's, it, still the true cost money. Yeah, isn't yeah. reflected in the product that they're producing. Mm. So meanwhile, they, they rake in more cash. Mm. Man, I reckon we should set up Goodyear. <laughs> well, because, you know, they also make make uh, liners, water liners. Oh, okay. Mm. Yeah, yeah, so if you're doing green roofs yeah, and stuff, yeah, yeah. and like we, we dabbled in that years ago, it was amazing to go, well, where do you get a liner from? Oh, there's a 15, 20-year guarantee, but you got to go to Goodyear. And then you go... What? Your brain starts going. They go, of course they make rubber liners. They make tires. And what they used to do, this is Goodyear as well, they used to make what they referred to as tire reefs. So the theory was you take a whole bunch of spent used tires and chuck them in the ocean Mm -hmm. to create an artificial habitat Mm -hmm. that apparently was going to support a whole bunch of marine Mm -hmm. ecosystems. What happened? Gee was a whole bunch of fish got real sick real quick. It's greenwashing. Yeah, of course it's greenwashing. (laughs) Let's let's talk about greenwashing. It's got to be one of the greatest threats to the environment and ultimately humanity, this perception of or, or this proliferated sort of idea that, oh, yeah, this looks great and whatever. I oh, don't look at the science. Don't look too carefully. A lot of things sound great. And sometimes the 
worst things can happen with the best intentions. Mm. But sometimes it's not just even the intentions. The, good, the only intentions is just to minimize cost and make more money. But we see this time and time again. And there's lots of examples of greenwashing. And you must get yeah, see a day and day. What, what yeah. you say, and no. every state is different with in terms of their legislation oh, yeah, and, yeah. oh, yeah, I mean, like I have a perfect example. I, sad as it is, I collect dog poo bags from around the country. Oh, my goodness, right? it's my pit hate. And pet hate, get it? I know. Yeah. Boom, shake the room. <laughs> but I collect them because every single one of them is different yeah. and every state has different laws and regulations around things like that. In Adelaide, where I live, we have a FOGO system, which is coming out in a lot of places. FOGO is food organics, green organics. Mm -hmm. And we have in our council area, green organic bags that can go into those bins. And it has a seed logo. And I was actually going to mention this yesterday. And our saying is if there's no logo, there's no FOGO. So they can break and they're biocompostable, certified biocompostable, which means they will go in there and it won't break up into tiny bits of microplastic. But then there's others that will have a pretend seed logo on them and then they'll call them oxo-degradable. Oxo-degradable. And I have a bag term. that I carry around. It's in a, it's in a zip, it's in a, um, another plastic bag uh, that I put in there eight years ago of one of these oxo oxy-degradable bags, and it's thousands of pieces of microplastic oh, really? to show people. It's crazy. Like, And now, now I've just got found another one, and I've got another bag to see how long it takes before it breaks up into that as just well. Just to point out, I don't um, collect the actual bags. What I was talking <laughs> about is, is human behaviour, yes. what a lot of people do all around New Zealand, mm -hmm. Australia, I'm sure all around the world. They physically pick up their dog's poo in the bag, and then they throw the bag into nature. Yes. You know, they, 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 they you're better they, off just leaving the poop there. The better off leaving <laughs> yeah. the poop there. I actually, because I like, you know, say in Wanaka, for instance, you know, the normal running track, I'll pick oh. up at least 10 packs a day. Yeah. And then oh. there'll be a bin 50, 80 meters away, <laughs> but they, they try and throw and hide it. Yeah. It's, it's it, crazy. It's, oh, I know. I know. So, yes, greenwashing is a huge thing, but it's about education. And that's the hard thing. Even with people like us that are knowledgeable on this, we still can get it wrong. You know, and so what does the general person have any, like my local supermarket, they have compostable bags and they, they pride themselves on having compostable bags. But obviously when those compostable bags mm. run out, they put the normal fruit one, put the normal plastic bags there. It's like, well, please, yeah. people, what, what are you teaching your customers yeah. that they can, these are compostable, but these ones aren't. So it's like just, it's, it's an easy compostable. win. Yeah. There is greater focus a lot of focus on consumers and education, whatever, but are we kidding ourselves to some extent? Because even for highly educated individuals like everyone here, <laughs> <Not me. laughs> we find it confusing. Yes, um, exactly. Meanwhile, the producers who are ultimately the ones producing these items and making a lot of money in the process mm. almost are just getting away scot-free. They are, absolutely. So how do we turn this around? Oh, it's that's tough. That's a big question. Yeah, that's a tough one. How do we turn it around? It, and it's the simple products like, you know, and they were talking about it yesterday, you know, the punnets for cherry tomatoes and strawberries. Mm. You don't, I mean, cherry tomatoes, you can buy loose now. But strawberries and blueberries, you can't buy those loose. Some places you can go to that you can get them in cardboard, but it's rare to find that, you know. And if you have a family that enjoys those products, like there's, there's some things that you just can't get away from. That's, well, that's plastic's the, so embedded in our everyday yeah. life. I was talking to Paul from Samsara yesterday, and he was talking about someone who tried to go a day without yeah. using plastic. He didn't even make it to the bathroom mm. because couldn't put his glasses on, couldn't put his contact lens in. 
therefore, you know, couldn't mm. even couldn't get, brush his teeth. Could, exactly. Mm. You know, we are so dependent on plastic. Let's face it, plastic was a revolutionary product when it came out and we're never going to get away from using plastic and medical and you know your iPhones everything is made of plastic we need to find a way to deal with that plastic mm. once it once it's it's stopped or its use date is gone mm. that, that's our challenge we, you know we can reduce the amount of plastic we're going to use but you're not going to stop using your iPhone mm. these these microphones that we're, we're talking into right now plastic your cords glasses, exactly shoelaces you know watches, your watches everything. everything everything is made of plastic we need to work out how we're going to deal with plastic when mm. it ends mm. it's a scary part that is a scary part and what's the stuff already out there how do we deal with that you are heavily involved in the educational side of things and i know you do various like corporate engagement days and whatever so you got people interested and inspired about microplastics so if people are keen to learn more and potentially get involved in some of these osmap studies what do they do Get in touch. I love working with corporate people because they come often and a lot of big companies these days give their staff a day off a year to, to do an environmental um, day with for a cause. Oh, right. And uh, we've recently started working with ANZ, for example, and they absolutely love it. They love that opportunity to get out there. But some people, there's always those people there that are like, ah, this is so much fun, like, you know, get out, get a day away, you know, from everybody. But they're the ones I love to change. You know, a lot of people that come to clean ups and and to events run by charities like organisations like ours, they're there because they love it. They want to learn more. They want to be involved. They want to make a difference. But a corporate group, yeah, they yeah, don't know diddly squat. It's a day off. It's a day off. It's like, yeah. But they're the ones I love the most because it's their mentality, their behaviour that we change. So how do you do that though? Changing their behaviour. Yeah, but how do you? What, what's involved in like a, a, corporate a day? day? Yeah. Uh, well, usually they're half a day events, yeah. depending on what people right. want. Uh, they come and they learn about the program. So we talk to them about an hour or so about what microplastic is and what are the sources mm. and what they can do to help. Uh, and then we go down and actually collect some real life data. And I mean, all the data that they collect with us is then used for our scientific study and is included in our hotspot map and in our national database. Their stuff is with working with scientists as scientists for the day. And so, and then we finish up, we process all of that, micro and macro began the small stuff. And then we then go through a whole session of personal action planning. So we then get them to think about, well, what's some changes that they can make and just the things that we're, we're talking about in the day, you know, with their personal, either at home or in their community or their school kid lunches, just getting them to think about things. And I can guarantee 98% of them will go home and change something. And then we do long, long-term questionnaires and things to see how did you change? Have you still changed? Is there anything you're doing more? So people feel empowered after that to be able to do that. So that's really exciting. Well, YG, I'm going to reach out to all our listeners right now, no matter what profession you're in, go to your boss, go to your workplace, mention the podcast, mention OzMap and say, hey, can we do this for a company day? Because it sounds like such a good educational course. You get out of the office, you, you get a half day off or a day off, but you get to go out and actually see what's happening. It's, uh, you know, that's the thing about this podcast. What can we actually do about mm-hmm. it? Get behind OzMap, get, get behind Michelle, dirty, get your hands part of dirty. the change. That's what exactly. we Exactly. Mm-hmm. So we'll, we'll include Michelle's details in the show notes. But long story short, just go to the OzMap website. Yeah. Absolutely. Which Stop is OzMap.org. Org. Easy. What's the general response from people? So you mentioned they changed their behaviour, but are they like Jeremy Megan? Couldn't believe just how many microplastics there are in this mm. little area. Well, the, I think the thing is be, they become aware. Like so many people, once you see microplastic, you never unsee it. Mm, and everywhere you Brad's go. here. <laughs> <laughs> I must say the same. Um, but, you know. Spectacular. 
<laughs> but you never unsee this stuff. Everywhere you go, you'll find it. And then you'll be amazed at where it is. And then you start to think of where it's coming from. And so those are the little changes that they mm. make. And then just personally, just how they can change, mm. you know, just with products that they buy and they use, we're giving them the tools to that. And we give them a toolkit to be able to then go forth and, and minimize their own plastic footprint. Dr. Michelle Blood, you blow our minds with your data, but we also blow our minds with your commitment to your cause. You know, five years in, what an amazing achievement. I don't know, it must be bloody lonely and bloody hard. Um, but without people like you giving the data back to the masses and giving people the tools for that public awareness, we just wouldn't have the level of understanding that we do. So um, from the bottom of my heart, thank you very much for all the work you do, Michelle. Um, we're very you. proud at Ocean Protect to be a partner of, of OzMap, and we look forward to, to continually working with you and promoting what you do and how you do it. It's just so, so important. Thank you. Yeah, it's wonderful to be here and see you lovely guys once again and in person doing this mm, rather than yeah, over Zoom, great. which is, is wonderful. It is great in person. Mm. We must keep that up. We must <laughs> yes. keep that up. <laughs> Happy to. Yes. Boom, boom. Shake the room. Thanks for listening to the Ocean Protect podcast. If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, check us out at oceanprotect.com.au.